0: Welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. I'm delighted today we've got another guest, uh, a little bit different this time. So the last few weeks we had people working in in the football world and the rugby world as regards coaches. This week we've got Richard Clark, who's a, a lecturer in sport and exercise science. And also, Rich, I don't know why you're known as this, but I'm going to call you as anyway, as the change of direction slash agility guru. So you're you're very welcome uh, to come on the show, Rich.
1: Thanks very much. I Appreciate the invite. It's a very uh, well. I don't know if it's a generous title or whether it's a, uh, <laughs> whether it's a um, yeah a, a negative one. But yeah, that's what I spend most of my time most of my time thinking about and uh, um, and dealing with. So.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you've got you've got a lot of feathers to your cap in that you're the course leader at Birmingham University of the, the Bachelor of Science Sport and Exercise Science, and um, you're the host of the Rich Performance Podcast. Uh, you also have, I see, uh, um, a blog. Uh, uh, athlete agility lab and you might in in a minute you might have a chat about your your recent blog post the the out out of our comfort zone i think which was really interesting and good read and also you're on the board of the uk uk sca so how do you have time for all these things
1: the, the short answer to that, I guess, is I don't um, <laughs> I have a chronic in, inability to say no, which uh, I'm slowly having to develop. But yeah, you're right. It's, um, it's a delicate balance that the, the university role is that takes up the majority of my time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a matter of outside of that finding time for, you know, I've got, I've got no kids. I like being yeah. busy um i'm passionate about and you know passionate about lots of stuff i want to be involved with lots of stuff so i yeah. just use my weekends and my evenings and whenever the the missus is happy for me to actually sit and mm-hmm. do some work to try and do something productively um yeah. you know coach as much as i can throughout the week and just
0: yeah always find time for for, for something extra for, for which, something extra. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like like, coming on to this show as well so obviously we've, yeah. got, we've got Ross Bennett We're kinda, we, we've got a one in one out job so we have another co-host uh, Joe Coulter he was with me last week as regards some of the, the GA, the Gaelic Games and the coaching stuff and the journalism stuff uh, for back, our audience back in Ireland we've got Ross Bennett back on um, head of performance with QBR Academy and with, with dealysportscience.com and Ross this is one that you've been looking forward to for, for quite a while
2: yeah, I've I've come off furlough leave from uh, the podcast and I'm I'm back on this morning. Listen, the guests we've had on here have been um have been excellent. They've been top class, and today I'm sure we'll definitely deliver today. Rich, thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you on, and hopefully we'll give the listeners as much uh, excitement as I'm I'm going to get out of this. So thank you very yeah, much. Brilliant. So 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 Rich, we 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 we've kind of seen you up on Twitter
0: quite a lot. So you're Rich underscore uh, Agility Lab. That's correct. Yep. Uh, as your Twitter handle. And so we've followed you for quite a while with all the change of direction and agility stuff. And then the first time I heard you speak was a few months ago, I think it was pre Christmas, um, at the UKSCA regional workshop in Middlesex University. And I thought you did a really, really interesting talk on agility and change of direction and also some of the applications across into. The applied field. So I thought it was quite interesting. Do you want to initially just give us an update on, um, aside from what we mentioned, just what what you're up to at the moment and maybe touch on a little bit about your PhD?
1: Yeah, sure. Um... I guess the main thing to me at the moment is, you know, work from university side of things plugs on. Um, PhD takes up a lot of my time in terms of extras and then uksca based um, kind of board duties, so to speak. Um, is kind of the other big, big project. Everything else is is me just keeping myself busy and, and scratching my own itches. Uh, but my PhD essentially is, it's change of direction uh, focused it's it's always a golden question when you speak to a phd student um in at a relatively early stage of what's your phd about <laughs> um, and in, in in short i'm i'm kind of focusing on speed control during change of direction we've got loads and loads of historical information on kinematics what the position should look look like 3d motion capture um And we just haven't really expanded or kind of, you know, taken a little bit more of a bird's eye view well enough yet, in my opinion, in terms of how somebody controls their entry speed, how that affects their exit speed. Does does their speed affect their mechanics on that plant step, which is where we see the associated injury risk. and, And ultimately just kind of how all of those things intertwine from looking at velocity and looking at how velocity changes rather than just total time this is how long it's taken you to get from a to b and this is what your position looked like there's kind of more to it to fill in some of those gaps so that's the big part for me um i'm part-time i've got another probably five years Mm. uh, officially i think i'll get given seven um, and i'm two and a bit years in um and yeah you you just never know when you're going to get a a sustained period of time to crack on and really get some work done you do nothing for four months because you have no time for it and then you'll get Two weeks when you can really get your head down, so it's pretty yeah. pretty sporadic.
0: Yeah, so you'd be busy at different different moments. I, I have the same thing myself, actually. Like you have just started into the, the process of a PhD, and I'm only a few months in now. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely some of those thoughts resonate with me. I think that was probably the big thing I took from that talk uh, when I went to your workshop was just when you're training, change of direction and agility. That remember. To make sure that your players are coming in at different speeds, at different angles, at different distances, with distractions, with interferences from other players. And it's something I thought was, it it resonated with me about building up that velocity, building up that pace, before you come into a sharp change of direction. Because a lot of times we set up drills and practices that are very, like... Short distances, so the speed is not so great, but actually in a, in a, in a match situation, a lot of times you're going to be cutting and changing direction at huge velocities um, in, in reaction to, to an opposition player, for instance.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always tough where you just have to, you've always got to come back to the sport-specific situation and the sport-specific challenges that people are going to face. Football versus rugby, they are two quite different multi-directional movement profiles um and you kind of just have to think i guess my general recommendation really is with lots of this stuff when i have these conversations with coaches is working backwards from the game and what the coaches sports coaches are giving them in training anyway and um you know football for example they do lots of short area choppy steps football-esque work Um, And they don't ever really, well, I say this is a stereotype, but they are less likely to, you know, be covering distance at high speeds, being able to deal with high deceleration demands. And actually, you know, you can argue, Oh no, that, you know, the the specificity of how far they sprinted or how much they have to decelerate and kind of relating that back to your time motion analysis and stuff like that. But we've got to overload it. So we have to extend things out and challenge them to break harder, sprint faster, um, get up to speed quicker um, and then perceptually know how much you need to break, know what speed you can be moving at in order to complete what 's in front of you rather than just only thinking kind of within our little enclosed space choppy choppy footwork kind of kind of base stuff
0: yeah that 's a really interesting thing and 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 know we, we'll get onto the we 'll get into the change of direction and agility more in the second half, and ross is going to touch on the u k s a in a second but it I, I find that interesting because. My original sport was um, um, Gaelic football back in Ireland, and, and obviously now working in football over here. And like Ross, we know the differences between the two as well, that in Gaelic football, you do get up to those bigger speeds, high-speed running, sprint distance. The pitch is you know, 150 meters long by 90 to 100 meters wide. So it's a huge area. I know it's 15 players a side, but because you can carry the ball in your hands as well, you actually get up to those huge speeds. So it's interesting to hear the differences between the sports and, and how you would train, tra- train to change of direction and, and, and agility as well. Ross, do you want to uh, jump in? Let's jump into the UK SCA stuff because I think that's really interesting as well while we have you here.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, just stepping back a little bit, Rich, and I think a lot of the listeners will, um, the UKSA is obviously leading in terms of, um, especially over here, in terms of the direction that practitioners go in. As as a board member, do you want to talk a little bit about your personal remit and kind of what you'd like to bring to your organisation? Um, yeah, practices?
1: sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, a really quick overview. There's five of us who are board members. Um um, five, six. Can't remember now. Under pressure, um, there's, there's a small group of us who are board members. They're all voluntary roles. The the only prerequisite is you have to be an accredited SNC coach through the association, anyway. So anybody who wants to be a board member who has something they're passionate about or an idea, you put yourself up to be nominated, and the membership vote you on or don't vote you on. Ultimately. Um, My kind of remit, really, I came in with it with a couple of key things. One, which was just transparency and communication, um, which is probably why you'll see me banging about it on on Twitter, probably more so than the other guys. Um, Just kind of making sure that we've got constant communication with the membership, letting people know what's going on. One of my, uh, I guess one of the things I think is a limiting factor, as as an association historically, um, that's not been prioritized. They've been busy doing stuff, but that is it's never been a, hi, by the way, this is what we're doing. It's kind of just plodded along, and if you didn't go to the the conference or the AGM, then you might not have known, other than maybe kind of emails and stuff from from the office. So that was kind of the big thing for me was transparency, communication with the membership. Um, One of the things that's probably keeping me the most busy with part of that role is I'm kind of leading on what is essentially a review of the accreditation process. As with you've probably seen, or hopefully you've seen, with the kind of the simspa, um stuff, and then the kind of the um, the steps now there are with SNC trainer, graduate SNC coach, and then going towards chartered status for the accredited level, we've we've taken that as a good opportunity to if we're going to um, ensure that what we have aligns with the expertise required to have a chartered status, then that's the time when we say, right, well, what are we, what are we currently doing? What are we currently expecting from, from coaches? Um, what do our processes look like? And we're kind of just reviewing that and just going through a really good um, A to B um, look at everything we do and how we do it. So we've got um, Professor Dave Collins, who's a, um, you know, you guys probably know. A yeah. um, one days yeah yeah lots of um you know psych or coach education consultancy um and he and i have been working together for last few months just kind of really dotting i's and crossing t's and asking the difficult questions to to work out how things are going to look moving forwards once the chartership process gets finished so yeah that's been um yeah that's been my job by night so to speak but it's been good it's been really really good things are really positive
2: that's, that's really interesting, something I was going to come on to in the next in the next bit about the accreditation, because I think in the past it's, it's been a very rigorous accreditation in the sense that you have a set of minimum standards that you'd like people to achieve and, and you pass the different elements but then it kind of, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're a good S&C coach, and it, but it stops there from a UKSA point, apart from CPD and stuff. So is, is is the plan to evolve that a little bit and, and for the coaches that are in the industry, keep working and keep assessing them a bit more formally?
1: Yeah, it's it, it's a tough one because it went, basically what we're looking at at the moment is, and nothing's nothing's set in stone, we're kind of in the middle of kind of going through the consult, um, consultation process and things like that. So. It won't dramatically change. Um, there'll still be four pillars. There'll still be a, a gym-based pillar. There'll still be a plyometrics, agility, speed pillar. There'll still be a case study. There'll still be an exam. The the chartership also brings a requirement of a a much bigger portfolio um, of actually kind of documenting what you've done over a couple of years, showing some of those kind of more reflective skills and. Um, kind of some of those profession, professional development skills which you know again those details are currently are currently up in the air but it's just about finding a really nice balance between what is a basic level of competency you if you cannot do this we are not willing to give you a i say we the association are not willing to give you a stamp of we think that you are competent in all areas you need to be competent and then balancing that with some some expertise where there's an argument oh well it Kind of depends in some contexts whether maybe isn't a right and wrong, um, and that's really kind of what we 're doing at the moment is working out where does the competency lie and have to stop, and then where does the expertise debate um, kind of professional judgment line have to have to come in and i'm sure you can imagine it's, it's not a simple task um, keep, keeping people happy and also making sure that we maintain high standards that for me is the most important thing that's one of the key aims of the association is you know improving standards. If you look at probably every other bar, maybe you know the Australian model is quite a good model it's just a long way away and people don't understand it over here. Um, Other than a few kind of handfuls, there really aren't many accrediting or you know um certificating bodies that have really high standards. You can do your do your CSCS, you do your exam, congratulations, it doesn't really mean much. And, you know, there's pros and cons to all of those. But for us, it's about you have to show that you are competent at doing something, because if we see that you are competent, we have more confidence in the fact that you can do things in in other environments and you have to turn up and you have to be able to show us that you can coach as well. You can't only document things on a paper format. You have to show a practical ability to do it in in a situation where you're being evaluated by a by an experienced professional.
2: That's really interesting because I think, and the thing you said about the blurred line about the competency and then where does that fit into each individual's industry and journey? Because sometimes what you see is you see people get UKCA and people that come out of undergraduate degrees and they have a really good theory, but then it's about how then do you apply that into each like organization, each sport with each individual athlete? Do you think that part's missing a little bit within the process?
1: Um, I think you could I think you could debate it could be I guess you then just have to kind of say you know short answer could you put it in in a little bit more detail yeah you probably could but you then just have the issue with how do you deem what's relevant for different contexts and different environments if you aren't there you're telling somebody else what you are doing isn't relevant for your context rather than saying as long as you've got these baselines you can then make those contextual based decisions I guess that's a difficult part of it I'd argue part of that is built into the case study anyway because you have to have planned and delivered a minimum duration of a case study with an athlete understand what it is they're trying to achieve what it is you know where it is that they work and there's some contextual based requirements around that and you'll probably also find that as we move forward towards the chartership status that some of those questions will be the kind of questions that are a little bit more expertise associated that when people put together a portfolio to document what they've done over the past few years in order to get that chartered status. That's the kind of thing that will probably naturally come up in that. Um, but yeah, it's always, a, it's always a tough one with having something that's suitable for everybody, having something that has a high standard so that we know that you can then do all the things which you might consider to be simpler than that. Um, but then also there being a a balance, of judgment between yes and no's and and grey
2: areas. Sure. Guess I'm asking quite a lot then for the organisation, and <laughs> it's probably the, probably the experience that then lends that into the practitioner's journey. That where them questions start to come out. Do you see? I mean, do you think it it could shift a little bit more towards the basis model? The chartership seems to be that way, where there's a bit more reflection upon practitioners on what they're doing and why.
1: Yeah, I think it will. So, so that's what that's what the portfolio will have in it. That is ultimately that's the, the charter ship requirements kind of coming into it. Um, and, and really, I imagine and don't get me wrong, I'm not perfectly um, familiar with all of the basis model. I know it kind of as a, as a skeleton, but what it will probably end up looking like is the, the basis model in terms of the requirements in terms of what's kind of um, what needs to be documented plus you have to turn up in person and show that you can practically be capable of doing it rather than just being able to write your, write your way around it. Um, And then those practical components will have a competency. Look, this is either safe or unsafe. This either shows that you can learn something or can't learn something or can coach yourself something or can coach somebody else something um, or you can't. And then the rest of those details around that can then, yeah, find their suitable place on the sliding scale
2: of, um yeah of those either ends of the spectrum i suppose for sure and i think you said it there the most important thing or one of the most important things is the ability to coach and that's something that can't be lost in the whole process um where's the trade-off Rich? then between obviously ukca is a growing organization um they're a business you know like most business they need to make money and you said that you want to hold the standards really high where's the trade-off then between you know making money as, a, as an organization and then keeping the standards very high the um,
1: first thing to point out is to kind of remember from the financial side of things, and you get people kind of make these comments, is, is remembering that the SCA is not for profit. So yes, there has, to be, there has to be income, because if there physically isn't any income, you, you, you can't do anything. You, know, you can't pay any office staff, you, you can't have a website, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Like There has to be some basic level of income. But everything that comes into the association from income is subsequently spent. Over the over the probably past 10-15 years, I think income was coming in and then just like stores of money was kind of slowly built up. There has to be a reserve. So for example, the, you know, we've got COVID at the moment, and the an association has had to stop the vast majority of its workshops, um, assessment days, etc., which were one source of income, and then that creates a financial strain on on, on anything, personal businesses, not-for-profit associations. Um And then you just kind of have to remember that what comes in gets reinvested. So early career development grants, community grants for facilities. um, The conference that we run each year isn't a profit making conference. It's pretty much every year. It's a break even. If not, it might have a have a small loss associated with it. Um, And and, and there's 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 a balance there with how much things cost for members or non members to do things. And then, how much it costs for the association to run day to day. And for, you know, for us to be able to have income, which we can then reinvest back into the profession um, to help people at kind of the different levels that we need to. And then the standards, I guess, I don't really think that those, those two things cross over. Um, the, The standards side of it is there is a, there is a line and that line doesn't move whether, whether you've got a, um, yeah, whether, whether you've got a, a certain level of experience or you don't, you need to be able to demonstrate that in front of people who are objectively evaluating whether you meet a basic requirement. That there, are, there are some, there's, there's, there's lots of challenges. And I think that, you know, whether that's kind of partially what you have in your head, there's lots of challenges where the pass rate isn't particularly high. But the issue is, is that one of the reasons the pass rate isn't particularly high is because people are so used to I just pay my money, turn up, it'll be all right. It'll yeah. be cool. I mean, there's, there's so many weird stories of people booking booking so booking accreditation days, have no idea what they're getting themselves into, have only ever been a PT in a commercial gym, have never coached a plyometric or a speed movement in their life, but they're just used to the landscape of it's really easy. I'll get my certificate at the end of this. It's a little weekend course. And it's like, no, it's not. It's a pretty robust professional evaluation of can you do it and do you understand it and ultimately if you don't you don't get a pass Um, you know regardless of if you can say oh but i've done it for 20 years but there's somebody in front of you who's saying you know we've asked you basic competency level questions and you didn't have what as an association and what as a a group of tutors and assessors all agree is the right safe effective answer Um, yeah, so it's a difficult one. So I'm not sure that the financial side of things and the and um, the standard side of things um, perfectly kind of um, align with each other. Um, but you know, they're both kind of challenging parts, I guess, to to the association in general.
2: For sure and no doubt about it, UKSA are doing some great things and, and I think from their emergence the quality of s coaches coming into different sports has, has definitely risen or a standard has definitely been set so well done to you and, and all the board members there for sure. Um, just a quick one before I go back to Kiers, and I'm going to divulge a little bit here. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned Dave Collins. I, I worked with Dave quite a lot at Chelsea when I was there years ago, and a very good guy, very outspoken guy, very knowledgeable guy. Um, and yourself, like me, and I don't mean to pigeonhole with you in my bracket, but I'm going to use it as an analogy here, very, very active on Twitter in terms of different things and how to get different messages across. Dave as well where do you see the industry within that realm of social media? Because a big thing for me is I don't think we are challenging enough as an industry. And I think everyone's happy to go along with certain things or if they're not, they don't want to speak out for different reasons. where do you sit with that in terms of that little social media realm? Um,
1: Is this this a loaded question? Um, (laughs) It's not a loaded question at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um look, look tough um i, I am active look, look i think i think twitter's brilliant i mean twitter's opened hundreds of doors for me built me loads of professional relationships and you use you get out of it what you put into it if you fill your twitter feed with with muppets you won't like it true, <laughs> quite, that's quite, true. quite frankly yeah. um it, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one there's a few things for me which i guess thinking from a ukca perspective um do people have a, a, a right to go on Twitter and to kind of... Okay, where do we start with it? Firstly, I guess the point is like, you know, negativity is always louder than positivity. That's one thing you have to remember on Twitter. We are psychologically ingrained to liking negative, liking to hear negative stuff. You go, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, and that's fine. You know, it, we, we certainly should be holding people accountable. We should be um, making suggestions of what we think could improve the few things that i kind of like to kind of keep in mind with that is especially from an association perspective when people are kind of talking about the uk sca should do this the uk sca why aren't blah blah blah. blah. the uk sca is the membership so this time last year i was just a member who was sat there thinking
0: Man,
1: you know what i'd really like to see this stuff like why isn't this happening just like everybody else is um i reserved that from, that from social media but just as a point um <laughs> But then I decided that actually, you know what, this is the way that this is something that I'm passionate about. This is something that I think that we should drive forward as a profession. You put your hand up and you, you get yourself involved. That's not me saying that as a as a board member, you're, you know, you, you're, you're removed from responsibility. You're absolutely not. You choose to try and leave things. You take everybody's points on board and you try and leave things in the best way possible. But that's something I try to remind people is that if you really are passionate about something and you want something to change, Yes, point it out, and we will absolutely take that on board. It's all very, um, you know, very open ears and open eyes. But ultimately, don't just sit on your ass and hope that someone else is going to give it to you. We will do our absolute best, but if you really want it, you're more than welcome to come and to come and help us. Um, so that's something that I always I always kind of um, just like to kind of remind people: we're not paid employees that do this full time. We're just members that like to, you know, get our, get our hands dirty and try and move things forward positively. And I guess the second side of things is, which actually relates to my earlier point where I, which was kind of my big MO, was about communication and transparency from the association where, it's the classic quote of um, seek first to understand and then to be understood. People have got lots of opinions and that's absolutely fine, more than welcome to share them and I'll listen to anybody's opinion. But a lot of the time, the vast majority of the time, it comes down to where people are slightly misinformed about something where actually you go well, actually that isn't the way that it works or um, actually we're already dealing with that or well that's not our we're not a governing body for example we're a professional body that means our role is slightly different we can't tell people in you know we can't tell employers or, or organizations what to do that's not the way that it works so a lot of the time it is partly that the mis- miscommunications um but at the end of the day Twitter is an open format. Everybody is free to share. You just hope that when they share that welcoming of someone saying, mm, actually, that isn't really the case, or we've tried that and it doesn't work, or that's not on our priority list because we've got loads of things above it. If you're passionate about it, well, we would welcome you to come and help drive it forward. So it's um, it's a tough one. I'm all open for positive dialogue. I'm all open for criticisms. As long as they're done in the right way and a professional way, and you know people are trying to achieve the same thing, they're actually trying to move it forwards for everybody. They're not just trying to put some cash in their own pocket, so so to speak, which is sometimes there, sometimes the case.
2: For sure, no good answer, Rich. Chat to Carl, yeah, but you done really well. Thanks. Sorry, when you mentioned Dave Collins, <laughs> my mind it just went somewhere else. So, um, yeah. Dave's ch-
1: been Dave's been great, by the way. Like you're right, yeah. Yeah, Dave's Day, quite outspoken, Um, but Dave's been. Dave's been great and he's got a lot of professional credibility behind him. Um, he's been s- complete so invaluable for me to kind of have as a musing board to how to move things, how to move things forward. So
2: send in my regards, Rich. Um, I'll um, I'll pass you back over to Kazu. I think we'll talk y- a little bit more y- Yeah.
0: On. No, just uh, touching on that. I mean, as we all know, the three of us are definitely Twitter is not always known for considered debate uh, as, as a forum. Um, but it is, it, I mean, it's great to challenge people and to question things. And I always appreciate people actually putting their hands up, putting their head up above the parapet, and, and saying out their views. It can be tricky because, as you say, there are some people who are misinformed and they'll bang the drum very loudly. And the further you get into that argument, you know, you can go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And it's sometimes hard to get back out of it. And all of a sudden, half your day is gone. Um, but no, I, I personally I would always applaud anybody who who puts their views out there. Definitely. Yep. Um, just moving on to the industry then as a whole, because I think you're in a, a kind of unique situation where you're a lecturer, you're a board member of UKSCA, um, you're starting into a PhD, you've got applied knowledge and experience. Like, I suppose, where do you see? The industry as a whole now you personally and, and a kind of a blue sky approach of from years ago where it was very much there were strength coaches in the gym we've introduced this accreditation system uh, we've got now like e triple p uh, standards in football where you have to have a sports scientist an snc coach a psychologist etc so there are a lot of people now in the industry aren't they but uh, where do you see the industry as a whole now?
1: Wow, um, I guess I would generally say I see things as really positive now. I think a lot of the problems, and I use that word with a hesitation, a lot of the hurdles that we've had over the over the year, especially within kind of my period of time, is is because of the S and C is elite sport. Mm. If you don't work in a professional club you not an SNC coach like that old kind of dogmatic kind of split between people, and I think that really that as things have kind of moved on, things have broadened. You know, use my my experience as an example. I, I've I guess taken the opposite route to a lot of people, where I went into academia relatively early because I knew that I could continue to coach at the same time. So mm. the, because of the you know the the um, limitations to pro sport roles, there was reasons why that that made sense for me at that point um, and, and i think really that where we are now is doors are opening people's eyes are opening and we're being a lot more accepting to, to things as the naturally as things get bigger they get more diverse and naturally as things kind of widen their widen their scope so to speak um, that creates more opportunities and really i think that's what we should be doing we've got loads of accredited members ex-pro sport for 10 20 years that now own privately run gyms and they're working with everybody from professional athletes to, um, you know, to to general pop and youth residency has become bigger. So there's a youth kind of route where people are going into schools and PE teachers. And, and I think that that's all really positive, because it's really broadening things. Academia has obviously increased lots over the years in terms of academic roles, um, you know, positives and negatives to, to that side of things for sure. But I think that the more we appreciate that what we have as as accredited SNC coaches, what we have as a skill set, is so valuable in so many different places, the more we think that unless we're wearing a tracksuit and we're with a bunch of professional athletes, it doesn't count. The the longer things are going to take to really move forwards and get better. So, yeah. you know, I really see at the moment where things are broadening. The chartered status will help that because charter chartership is a is is a more recognizable accepted title of expertise which gives kind of you know a little bit more more weight and clout you know you get to be a little bit more aligned alongside physios professional practice you could most people would argue that most physiotherapy clinics probably need an s coach in there of, of some description so I think we're in a really good place things are moving forward really quickly um, which obviously creates some challenges and creates some dangers but things are broadening out people are getting more job opportunities in different routes which from my experience, people need to open their eyes too a little bit more. Um, but I think things are, I think things are good I think the next five, 10 years is, is really positive because it yeah. means people can do what they love, but they don't have to do it working for a very, very small, specific, um, you know, group of employers, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you think we're moving towards, I'm just trying to think of the American model where you have your athletic trainer and they'll often be called that. And often they've come from kind of an athletics background originally. But there are being an athletic trainer in every single high school and college and university. And it hasn't really been that way in, in the UK or Ireland or in Europe. And I remember when I was in Middlesex University and one of our lecturers, Rob Walsh, like a, a brilliant S&C coach and, and rehab specialist. And he was actually working as the... S&C coach in Harrow school you know and I remember at the time initially I was kind of looking down my nose a little bit sorry Rob um, fellow Irishman and I thought well yeah but I don't want to be coaching school kids and you know rich school kids sorry um, to you know squat and they're never going to be on the pitch or whatever but actually I'm seeing it creeping in more and more now and as far as I can see the UK SCA are kind of Pushing that a little bit and saying, Well, look, here are these opportunities and advertising out these roles more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, are we moving that way? Yes. I don't think that having an SC coach everywhere is, is on the horizon, so to speak. I, the American, you know, you, you're right, it's a little bit more um, prevalent in the US, so that they've got cultural and, you know, contextual reasons as to why that's the case. And I don't think we're going to get that point anytime soon. Um, we've already touched on Twitter and UKSCA accreditation. let not, not touch on politics and um, school funding, <laughs> things like that. Um, but, but you're right. Like you know, as as a quick example, you know, we um, when I was at Gloss at one point, you know, we advertised for a for a technician. Technician role is a, one is a, a gra- it's an absolutely great role. Um, part coaching, part research, part teaching, part general assistance. Loads of professional development, annual increment, blah blah blah. blah all the benefits of. Of higher education, starting salary £26,000 or something like that, I think it was. Um, and this is at the time, five years ago, six years ago, rife with all of the negative sides of internships and professional sport. And you, we got less than 10 applications. Most of them didn't even meet the essential criteria have a master's degree and be accredited as a C coach and you think what, what are we doing there's a yeah. and don't get me wrong people are people need to pursue what they are passionate about doing if you don't want to work with the youth there's no obligation to you don't have to support, you know go through that to work your way up you have to choose what you're most interested in yeah um but there is definitely at least in my opinion a an overlooking of anything that if it, if the job advert if you aren't working for somebody fc you know um rugby football club or whatever it might be yeah, people just it's automatically lower down their priority list despite the fact that it might be a better job some of those are youth-based i've worked with obviously hundreds of students over the years and some of them will go ah, i don't want to work in in youth training though ah, okay and that's when they're that's when they're a first second year undergrad student and then Two and a half years later, i have kind of changed their minds. Yeah, and they realise yeah. that actually, it's really, it's really rewarding. It's really good fun. You get to yeah. get all of the same feelings of doing the 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 S and the S C stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, yeah. off the plate. And people just have to be be open to to those options. Yeah.
0: I think that sounds like a lot of. Ross, we know s coaches, sports scientists, coaches who all want to work with the first team in the Premier League in, in football and they're in a race to get to that position instead of maybe building expertise at, at youth level and, and everything like that. Actually, just tied, tied into that, something we, uh, I, I meant to ask about as well, uh, there was a position statement on internships as well from the UKSCA and Ross, I mean, sure, you've more experience than me, even with your current role uh, as head of performance, and you've dealt with an awful lot of of interns in in QPR and everything.
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point, Rich, and it's just interesting maybe to see because listen, I really, really hear what UK say we're coming out and saying. Look, we need to value our employees more and i get that 100 percent. a couple of things that maybe logistically is quite tough and it's interesting discussion is that like us as people that are hiring those people don't have control over the finances and i think you know the arguments you have with the ceo and the boards it's really tough isn't it and it's how do you how do you make your department expansive and give people good experience without maybe those financial resources there
1: yeah, it's, it's it's a really difficult one, um, and obviously it's something which gets spoken about lots because you know finances are naturally on people's minds. It's, yeah, I, I guess everywhere's different. Different people make. Um, I don't know really knowing who in a professional sports club who's making those decisions about what the salaries are. Um, one of the things which really resonated with me was something actually that um, that Stu McMillan actually said on Twitter is you know if if if, an, if a um, if a, if a club doesn't really highly value um, an S&C coach, they won't pay that much. And if they see a huge value in what they bring,
0: yeah.
1: they'll pay more because they want somebody of a really high quality because they know that there is a really, really important kind of concept to it. But it, it's just a difficult one where you have to kind of take everything in the broader scope of things where five ten years ago some jobs will be unpaid and now we're in a position where they're not unpaid but It's not very well paid and <laughs> it, it, as, as time moves forwards that'll slowly become better paid and, and obviously it's you kind of go ah that's not paid very much and it's, no it's not but it might have been an unpaid internship five years ago so let's at least say that it's progress um and it's a tough one you know we as associations the, the UKCA can't tell people how much to Pay people it's just not gonna it's not gonna happen we set out what we think are good suitable guidelines and you know we do our we do our best to um you know encourage people to adopt them but again that kind of comes relates back to something I mentioned to you earlier where people who are heads of department people who are in a position of influence to try and influence things the best they can if you need another member of staff don't just say oh we'll just get an unpaid internship because that's just feeding the problem that we that we have so you know as 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 SNC coaches and as members or as um, people within the profession you know we need to all contribute towards that at the, at the same time
2: yeah it's, it's, it's a good point it's a really interesting discussion I mean I really like the point you said about if someone comes in with little value then you know the club are going to value you at what they think you're worth but I guess for someone coming in as a, as a as an unpaid intern I guess sometimes it, I, I see it more as an opportunity because okay they might get full expenses they might get other benefits that aren't high in monetary reward but like for example we had Ben um, smaller who was on our podcast a, f- a few months ago a few weeks ago and it, within three or four months he got a part-time job at the club because he we valued his worth and he, he proved himself within the first three months sometimes do you think that that's necessary then to see because we have such an influx of of students coming out of uni and and practitioners wanted to get into enrolls you know sometimes that three or four month hardship can tell a lot about someone
1: yeah there's there's an element of that um one of the things you have to think about where something's competitive the people who rise to the top are the people who really really want it and those are the people who maybe make the hard decisions and do the hard, do the hard things. And I think that there's, there's an element to go, yeah, I think that's fair enough. But at the same time, you kind of have to go, just because that's how things kind of historically were, um, doesn't mean that that's the way we should continue them being. It, it's tough with the internship side of things because of the balances of who's getting the value. Is it really a developmental opportunity? Is the club just trying to get someone in to do something? If you have somewhere, and you have you know, examples that maybe you've just given where, People go into places. They get. They show their worth, and they are. They are immediately, or they are rewarded because they have clearly demonstrated they've got an ability to do things. If that's going to be the case, I think that that's that's all good. Ideally, you know, the stance that kind of we have from association perspective. Ideally, the um, if it's an unplayed role. Ideally, that is somebody who is within the education system because then you know that they are you know within a developmental process outside of outside of that anyway um but the problem is is that there's a lot of clubs that don't do that there's a lot of clubs that just get someone a new person in year each year never with an intention of bumping somebody up to offer someone a job just rolling people over because they need somebody to just help and they don't want to hire somebody new and actually they don't give those junior members of staff or, or interns or whatever they don't give them a um you know a lot of mentorship or a lot of development and that as a club or as a team they're the only people that only one that's benefiting other than the fact that the intern can leave and put something on paper from a
2: cv perspective so it's again it's really it's really tough because everyone's different sure no it's really tricky and it's obviously not it's about not exploiting the person and and i think the development process is important isn't it making sure the person whatever financial reward he gets in that time or she gets in that time making sure their development process is as high as it can be and the department they invest into him or her as much as they can um, yeah. i think but, it's,
0: it's highly dependent isn't it on the club and on the organization and how they treat that whole process because in our situation in Queen's Park Rangers Academy, I think, Ross, we've probably given people opportunity. I mean, I came in as an intern you know, a, a number of years ago, and you work hard, you show your, your bit of talent, um, you invest into it. And I really liked, I, I remember that as well, Rich, when, when Stuart, Stuart was saying that on on Twitter about show your value. Um, and interestingly, just, just to bring it along, actually, do you think that we suffer from as an industry uh from a reputation originally as being strength coaches um let, let me let me add, add a little bit to it let me add a little bit so so for instance if you, if you think of your C coach a lot of people will enter into the industry and be focused on the s so the strength because they love the gym work. Um, they enjoy that that environment. They're very very knowledgeable about that, and they'll definitely get a player or an athlete stronger. Sometimes it, a, a little bit can be forgotten about the sea, the conditioning uh, part. I think the athletics coaches probably have a lot more knowledge about that. You know, let, let's say a lot of American coaches. Um, I think it's improving in that. For instance. Uh, uh, a guy that we're big fans of martin boucher and and paul lawrenson with the hit science but also what about the coaching part as well you know if you listen to somebody like nick Winkleman, i was listening to a podcast with him yesterday and they're really pushing that can we suffer a little bit as regards that the focus is kind of an snc coach is a strength coach and that's what they do in the club. And maybe we don't show enough of our, our value to the club and to, 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 to people who are making decisions, for instance, financially as well as, as um, positions, for instance.
1: Yeah, I think, that, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I'm not sure whether it's necessarily the, the strength coach side of it in terms of, you know, we, we all appreciate how important force production and strength-based training is. <laughs> that, that naturally sits at the top of people's to-do list as it, it kind of needs to. But I would also say that I guess it's more about the, the preconceptions that people have of when you say or you are a strength and conditioning coach, mm. what they think that your skill set is. Yeah. We, we all value coaching skills. We all value more kind of metabolic understanding, pitch, speed, plyometric agility based training. Um, but that's not people's immediate Thing that they associate with us, they yeah. they associate well, our strength training in the gym, yeah. barbells, and and, and yeah. th- there's, a, there's a there's a there's a guess there's a, there's a reason for that. You know that's um, naturally how it how it has been. That's where the roots have come from. Um, you look at the progression of the way S&C has kind of changed over the years. You know, that historically the in the information was bodybuilding, powerlifting based. Then it yeah. became weightlifting based, and then now we've be, we've been through a bit more of a speed conditioning based. Um, emphasis over the past few years and will probably now move towards a, a change direction agility based emphasis over the next few years or if i have anything to do with it <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I saw your face change Ross, and i was like you're <laughs> gonna
0: say it if i do get get, um, get get that book written and get it sold that's what you need to do
1: <laughs> so you know I, I do think i don't necessarily think it's um, I don't necessarily think it's a problem like strength training is that we shouldn't be prioritizing that we should prioritize more things. I think we are really well-rounded and really capable practitioners, yeah. but we at the moment haven't effectively educated everybody else, what it is that we actually, we actually do. Um, yeah. and I think the, the, the better we do that is probably where the, the barrier is rather than us worrying about our own, our own, educa- our yeah. own education.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Ross. Your little fella Carlito, the little footballer, we can hear him in the background. Oh yeah, that's the rich. That's the half Italian in his in Ross's son coming out.
2: Probably, probably wants wants some food that the wife isn't giving him. Yeah,
0: the, the, the um, it's interesting then, so he, What's the role of the universities then in that? Like, I mean, I'll just give you an example. So, for instance, when I started in Ireland, uh, I went to University of Limerick, Sport and Exercise Science, uh, I think in Jordanstown, in Belfast, there was a course, and there was one other course in Dublin City University. So, there are three hubs all over Ireland. Obviously, Ireland, much smaller, smaller population. Now, if I go back to Ireland, every single... Institute of Technology, college, university, they're all doing s they're all doing sports science, which is brilliant, obviously, and people are following their passions, um, but it does mean that the market is absolutely saturated now. Like, is—is—is is, 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 First of all, is that a problem for us? And second of all, how do you, you, as a university, then kind of make your students stand out? How do you make them a little bit different than the next university? Yeah,
1: look, good, good question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's been this huge boom in, you know, I was previously at the university of Gloucestershire before I moved jobs in September um, and course led an undergrad and a postgrad degree in S and C. And there's been a huge boom in that degrees becoming more specific. Um, And actually I think that that has created a bit of the problem. There's a, there's a really difficult balance in higher education between getting a degree which is an academic qualification where the primary role of it is that you become an educated individual. Scientific literacy, communicate in different forms, critical skills, graduate skills, just becoming, you know, becoming employable no matter what you do. And then the other half of that is the vocational skills that you need to be able to do the job that you're studying. And sports and exercise science is a really difficult one because and I guess like one of the things I often say here is we really need, we really need to differentiate better between sport and exercise science or strength and conditioning. Mm. If you do a strength and conditioning degree, it's very different to sport and exercise science degree, or at least it should be. That's my opinion. That's how we wrote the degree at, at glass, et cetera. Um, and there's obviously, if you do a strength and conditioning degree, there is a requirement that you should have the basic skills of an SNC coach when you finish, along with those academic graduate skill requirements, which are really, really important. But then we just kind of have to consider that as a sport and exercise scientist or a sport and exercise science degree, you don't have to have those same skills because let's I'll give an example. I've got 40 students a year group, something like that at the moment on our on our program. I could probably count you on one hand how many of those want to be SNC coaches they interested in psychology interested in physiology lab-based testing interested in nutrition and nutrition supplementation etc etc some of them have absolutely no interest in coaching at all because they're doing a sport and exercise science degree and actually it's not a t- coaching degree there mm. should be coaching elements in it i think that's good practice and we should be encouraging them to do those things but i think we just sometimes have to remember that those two not disciplines but they are different things they have different outcomes and if you you know if you want to stand out to get a job after you graduate as an snc coach if you've done a, a sport and exercise science degree you're probably behind the rest of the rest of the pack because you've chosen a generic program because you probably didn't know what you really wanted to do which now means you're a couple of years behind other people who made a commitment early on to know exactly what they want to do know exactly how they want to kind of move move forwards um, but it, it's definitely been difficult where more and more programs have come on come on board more and more people will graduate with a certain a certain title um, and in terms of kind of trying to differentiate students from other ones that firstly choose the program that you know contributes towards your end goal of where it is that you really want to go if you want to be a sports therapists don't do a sport and exercise science degree as an example similar comparison to S&C we just kind of forget about sports therapy Um, but at the same point you kind of got that choosing where you want to go choosing what it is that you want to study and the university needs to be able to provide lots and lots of opportunity for you to upskill in the things that they can't they can't formally help you with within the curriculum Internships, placements, experience opportunities, coaching, mentorship—the vast majority of S and C-based degrees, at least that I know of, do that really well. But actually, one of the biggest barriers is students sometimes can't be asked.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and and as much as you know, and again, that's not saying that as a as a as a as a um, as a course leader of a program, as a lecturer on a program, that we shouldn't take responsibility. We absolutely should. But I know people in lots of different institutions where Every year, placements, internships go unfilled. Intern- internship, professional football club. Like, you'd think that's the, what everybody would jump at wanting to be able to do, yeah. and you can't fill it. And that's not, that's not a student fault, because there's reasons why. Financial, time, um, confidence. There's lots of different reasons to why it doesn't get filled, but we're just at a point when it's like,
0: mm, there's,
1: there's just, say, a mismatch between student what students maybe expect or how simple it's going to be but then when you tell them they don't really change their mind a little bit some of the contextual requirements in terms of if it's an unpaid role students just can't afford to do it these days and that is different I think to 15 years ago um, yeah. as well as the roles that are being advertised if you can't be flexible and work around the fact that a student has got an, an academic timetable that they should be working around and they're going to be low skilled and they're going to need some some hand holding and some confidence building
0: yeah. if
1: you can't do that then they just don't match up yeah. at the moment i just think we're in this awkward period of time when loads more programs loads more kind of jobs at the end of it but then what builds what fills that gap is um time on task and is coaching time yeah. but then the opportunities that students have to coach sometimes don't develop them how they want to they don't buy into the development in a way that they want to um they don't commit to it because actually they don't really know what they want to do anyway so it's, it's a really really complicated one where it's yeah. another one you know you're touching all of my all of my hard soft points aren't you um, <laughs> it's, a re- it's a really difficult one where it's a bit like the a bit like the UKSA side of things people's natural natural reaction is the UKSCA should do this universities they should do this it's like, that no, there's lots of moving parts in this. It's not of as course. simple as, let's just say someone else should do better. Like, yeah, everybody can improve. Degrees can improve. The association can improve. But actually, a degree is optimized if the student buys in, the staff buys in, the institution buys in, the clubs that are going to provide some good quality, opportunity. real-life opportunity buy into facilitating that. Yeah. Um, and then that obviously is, is, is wound into being suitable for the current context and economy within yeah. the uk um and the same from the uksa side of things there's, there's loads of moving parts and it's not as simple as you no, of course. do that better yeah uh, yeah yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's,
0: there's
1: lots of complexity
0: i i, I think I, I think and you touched on it and it's a really good point about the individual and 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 the student and not to throw your students under the bus at all because i'm sure they're amazing and great but just getting out there and getting some experience like i, I did a Sport and Exercise Science um, degree, I started coaching four and five-year-olds at Gaelic football. That was my first kind of full-time job up to age of 16. But, like, you learn so much from just doing that. Now, there was no s involved in that at all. You know, there was no detailed science. But you, you learn to, how do you teach a five-year-old to catch a ball and kick a ball and everything like that. They're the kind of skills that stay with you then right throughout your career, regardless of what you go into. I think it's a, di- it's a really difficult one, and I don't know the answer, about is the industry, and for instance, in our experience of football clubs, for instance, are we going down the the uh, generalist kind of avenue or the specialist? Like Tony Strudwick, the, the great fitness coach at Manchester United during Alex Ferguson year, years, he did a really kind of a seminal workshop and presentation, didn't he, a few years ago about you need to be a generalist now in a football club. But I don't know, actually, because I see people now who are becoming very experienced and huge qualifications in one specific area, and a club will want to get access to that knowledge. Like, for instance, if you, you could go in, Rich, to um, Arsenal, and I'm sure you could help those players to improve their change of direction. And from Arsenal's point of view, well, that'd be, that's worth it because that will improve the performance. But on the other hand, it's quite good to have a sports scientist who can step in and coach a bit, who can do the gym, who can do monitoring, who can do GPS. I'm not, I'm not sure what way it's going to fall yet. Or maybe there's a place for both. I'm, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, if I had to if I had to bet it would fall on a generalist um, and, and I I would, I would still describe myself as a generalist or I would, um, yeah, I guess I've only really in the last few years started to really specialise my under, my understanding in something.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I, I do think it's going to kind of just fall back to kind of the generalist side of things. And I, and I think that absolutely should because you need to be adaptable as a practitioner. You need to be able to wear lots of different hats, even to the point where you could argue that if a Sports coach was a really good and had a really good S and C based understanding. They could just do both jobs. And obviously, yeah. there's only a certain number of hours in the day, but yeah. there's, there's no real reason that you have to have very very specific specialist people. Apart from in maybe very specific situations mm-hmm. when workload complexity, um, you know, the what's what the, the potential outcomes and you yeah. know the,
0: um, the psychologist maybe. Yeah,
1: and of course, I think there are some specific things there when it's yes. psychologist, protected titles, um, yeah. you know, yeah. you've got to be careful sometimes with some nutritional considerations. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think being a generalist, especially from an S&C's perspective, but at the same point, I kind of go, an S&C is a generalist. The, yeah, I yeah, agree. That, that as a title is it's the applied understanding of physiology, psychology, biomechanics, control, <laughs> coaching, applied to a particular person at a particular point in time within a particular environment so you yeah. can't physically do the job without being a generalist but yeah. then you know I, I guess you one of the things that a bit kind of like my comment earlier with the degree titles that you get a bit of a you get a little bit of kind of a a mix-up not mix-up that's maybe the wrong word but you just kind of get a little bit um muddy watered with is a sport and exercise scientist versus an SNC coach. Yeah. And it's like sport and exercise science in professional sport monitoring GPS reporting that kind of stuff that isn't SNC. Yeah. So you can be a really good sport and exercise scientist and be really valuable to that club but be a bang average SNC coach and vice versa. You can be a very good SNC coach but just have no value in I don't understand GPS isn't my thing that's not something I'm a huge um, lover of so I would probably be a pretty useful of course um a pretty useful SNC coach but <laughs> probably a pretty bang average sport and exercise scientist yeah um and you just kind of have to be you know kind of clear with the, the differences and yeah. Yeah. Whose role, who, what skill sets people have what you expect from those skill sets yeah. where they're useful where they're not know your own professional boundaries yeah and if you're head of a department you need to build a team suitable that everybody complements each other
0: yeah, I think it it does matter from a football point of view, and uh, I use football as, a, as an example because that's what we're working in, but it's applied to all sports. It matters what level as well the club is at, because if you're League Two, you can afford to get a sports scientist. That person is probably doing the warm ups, the gym session, the activation, the GPS if there is, the heart rate, uh, you know, probably nutrition. Maybe even a bit of psychology, you know, the, the works. Whereas, again, you go back to your your Chelsea, Man United, Man City. They probably have their specialists in in those positions. It's interesting, though, actually. And myself and Ross are are at the moment going through our UEFA B uh, football coaching badges. It depends on what club as well. So, for instance, Chelsea. You know, who we all have a little bit of experience of coming up against and or working with, with Ross. Um, they will always value a coach, you know, somebody who understands the sport. And Ross, even at QPR, it's probably somewhere similar in that to sports scientists. If you have a knowledge of the practices and the skills the skills involved in the game and the tactics, you're, you're probably going to be valued a little bit more, I think.
2: Yeah, I think it's massively um, dependent on the organisation and obviously who's employing you and, and what they value and what they want in their employees. Um, but I think it's interesting, Rich, because in football, I think especially uh, apart from the top clubs, the S and C is probably doing the, the the sport and exercise science stuff as well. So even though it might not be something that they wanted to get into, probably when they landed on in their job, they soon realise that oh, I've got to get to grips with these reams of data and stuff. So it's um it can be a massive shock, but. I'm, I'm a generalist fan in general I I, quite, I don't like lots of different people flitting into the department and, and you know I think it's harder then to get communication right to get everyone working on the same page I think you need people in a department that bring different specialist areas and expertise but at the same time I quite like everyone being able to do everything to a degree even though they're, they're better at some things than others so it's yeah. just dependent on how departments are run and how clubs are run of course kids
0: yeah lads we be, we, sure. be, we better move on to change the direction and agility. <laughs> <laughs> unless you want a quick break or anything ah you
1: good it's, it's going to be okay. some easy questions at some point in time <laughs> so we,
0: well these
2: we, we thought we'd, we'd get all the hard ones and the you know the ones that <laughs> you might touch your soft spots in the first part and then the second one you're just going to be giving us loads of good info Freeze. that we can't come back at so um, <laughs> that's the plan nice, nice. <laughs> ross do you want to you- yeah no obviously the talking shop and talking what what you love and what you're interested in rich so um the first one then talking i spoke a little bit with you interacting around um like deceleration and i kind of termed it as the foundation of movement and again really good point you made about things missing people being misinformed i think what i meant by that is is i think sometimes it's often coaching like teaching someone how to decelerate before they change direction maybe might be forgot and yet they expect someone to change direction really well you've come up with a really good concept or really interesting concepts around the deceleration deficit so do you want to talk a little bit around deceleration take it wherever you want to go and just um give us some ideas on that and how how you maybe program program that work
0: yeah sure
1: Um, for me it's it's just a matter of deceleration has just kind of been forgotten you're completely right it doesn't get coached that much Um, when it does it doesn't surpass much further than just stop on this line which goes a long way but doesn't necessarily you know round things like we like we potentially could and for me a lot of the reasons for that is it doesn't get focused on because we don't quantify it and we don't test it until we test it we don't know whether it gets better we don't know whether somebody's good or poor at it we don't know whether it influences different things on pitch etc etc and we've just never really had a good method of being able to test and quantify that as a component of fitness for want of a want of a better term Um, and I I think that that's a mistake everything that you look at everything I I use um, slightly over exaggerated words sometimes most things that you see from an injury perspective are Eccentric, um, you know, initial contact, early, um, you know, kind of early decelerated demands on, on on muscle groups and tissues. And if all we're doing is doing a jump test and a sprint test, which in most cases is what is happening, that we're only doing propulsive based testing. We aren't considering anything that's actually really braking related, deceleration related. And you can infer some of those qualities from reactive strength index eccentric of force development on a force plate if you're doing a vertical vertical jump um, the five oh five test i'll come on to in a second a change of direction test has a deceleration element to it so you can kind of infer some of those things and you maybe don't need to specifically quantify it from testing perspective but I just think if you don't it's very easy to forget about it because it's just not this measurable measurable outcome and I guess you know historically we've We've been able to measure it, but GPS, you can do it for a long time. It's hugely unreliable. It's better now because of its um, frequency of recording. So you can do it from GPS, but that's only going to work in certain situations, and it only gives you certain information. We can do it with a radar gun, um, just like you would do with a linear acceleration and kind of have an acceleration profile. You can do that from a deceleration profile. That's obviously equipment, time-heavy. So I kind of looked at it, I guess, with a a change of direction interest where – Deceleration is a really, really important um, link between having or being at speed and then being able to use that speed in different planes of motion if you're running flat out, your ground contact times that everybody knows are really really small, and if you need to cut to sixty degrees, whatever it might be, you need more time on the ground to be able to partially break, reapply force, and then move your body into a new movement direction and the only way to do that is to be running slower ultimately so you've it's not always a maximal deceleration to a stop um, but there's an element of speed change to give you a wider number of opportunities as you're as you're kind of moving in a multi-directional multi-directional manner so kind of the deceleration element really linking in and being the um you know being the thing that kind of links that linear speed and the multi-directional movements and that's kind of one of the reasons why I fall back to a 505 test. Um Again, not everybody tests change of direction because to be honest, if you do a 505 test and the only thing you get is this one number, that's yeah, pretty limited. The chances are the people that are the best at that are also your quickest players Um, and it makes interpretation quite tough. But I actually kind of look at the 505 test now as a deceleration test more so than a change of direction test. It's, it's the only test where... Someone's got to accelerate. This is a traditional one over 15 meters, which I currently use, where you have to accelerate over 10 meters, approximately that, and then you have a maximum deceleration. You have to come to a stop and then you re accelerate again. Everything else, which is a change of direction test, if you're not turning to more than 90 degrees, you aren't coming to a stop. You are maintaining a little bit of speed and you're just trying to convert it into the new place. So it's just a good protocol that forces somebody to decelerate forces somebody to do that left side right side independent so you can get a little bit of a look at how they can kind of their competency and performance level on both sides and it's also within a change of direction based test which actually means that you can look at loads of things at once none of us want someone to come along and go hey I've designed a new test but it takes three tests to quantify the number and you need to do it on the top of the other 15 tests you already do it's just never going to be implemented so I guess I just looked at it as if we can. Take a 505 five test, which is or has a really heavy deceleration component to it. And if we can just look at that in more detail rather than just a one-number outcome, and we can then say from this test and a linear sprint, which pretty much everybody would be doing anyway, we can then say this is how good you are at decelerating, this is how good you are left side versus right side, this is how good you are from a change of direction deficit point of view, which is a um, a variable people are a little bit more. Familiar with, and we can just get a much better profile of somebody's multi directional speed qualities compared to just doing things which are propulsive and which are, um, you know, kind of concentric in nature. Um, and, and ultimately, the way that that works is you, you take the same principle of the change of direction deficit, you cover 10 meters in a straight line, and then you cover 10 meters not in a straight line. In this case, it's a 180 degree turn, and you do the same thing with the deceleration deficit you cover 15 meters where you just are running as fast as you can past the 15 meter line. And you compare that to covering 15 meters when you're stopping on the 15 meter line. So the extra time that you've needed is the time that you've needed to come down to a stop. Um, So it's really similar to the change of direction deficit concept. And, you know, I've got kind of lots of data on this now. It's kind of an early, early part of my PhD. And you just don't see clear, associations between people who are fast and then people who can stop quickly um, change of direction deficit you don't always see somebody who's got a good change of direction deficit they aren't necessarily good decelerators so you start to then go you're good at this you're not so good at this this is what your training protocols ideally need to look like um, and i have distant in my head that then having injury associations i've just got no data to back that up yet but i, I would argue you know piecing things together and trying to synthesize information if you're really fast but you can't stop you're probably at a greater risk of injury than somebody who's quite slow and can stop because if you run quick you create lots of load on every ground contact and then if you can't come to a stop but something comes along where you can't um you can't just maintain your speed and run a curve you have to break slow down cut 60 degrees if you don't have the competency or the capacity to do that, you're probably at an increased risk when you finally try to plant that foot and solve that, solve that problem. Um, but that's a distant, you know, we need to really look at that. And, and anything that's injury related, the chances of having a good, really clear link in data is pretty, it's pretty slim. Um, but for me, that makes a lot of sense. And I just think if we can measure the deceleration, and the deceleration deficit is just a convenient field-based method of doing that, but with tests we kind of already, already use without adding more things that somebody needs to do, then I think that opens a lot of doors, and I think that that might change the way people start to view things, because they've suddenly got, I can actually measure if this is going to change or not, which I, you know, I hope is a good step forward.
2: Yeah, re- really good step, Rich. Um, a couple of things from that, and that's some really good stuff there. One thing, have you looked at, like, maybe, obviously, the, we talked about the eccentric control and the physiology that might feed into the deceleration, the sort of profiling you want from your players. Do you have any, obviously, it's dependent on the equipment you have, but anything then that support that, so, phys- like, the ability to control a, a depth jump or a landing or something like that, anything then you'd look at specifically to to feed into the, the deceleration properties?
1: Yeah, um, Again, we don't know too much yet until you measure it. You can't link things to it. But in terms of kind of stuff that's out there already, so quad strength is a big, big predictor. Um, Eccentric quad strength. If the ground is, if you're running along and the ground is moving underneath you, which is basically what's happening, and you put your foot in the ground, that's just a huge knee flexion moment. So you've basically just got to have a really good knee extension, eccentric strength, concentric strength to try try and control that. That's certainly a big part of it. Um, and the other thing is uh, I know um, for example I've, I've had this chat very briefly with Andy Hudson I know that in the past that um, he said that they looked at in the EIS um, eccentric rate of force development in a counter movement jump and actually how well that relates to some of the more linear deceleration abilities and I think he said that there was some some use there I don't have any any kind of numbers to quote but I think on the on the, on the basis of things is that lower limb eccentric strength is going to be really key your ability to be able to absorb or dissipate force is a more accurate way to describe it but to be able to do that at um relatively flexed joint angles we don't want you people to rely on these extended knee positions where you just have to jam the leg out in an extended length to reduce the amount of work that you need to do muscularly. that's where some of the risk is so at the moment you just kind of go lower limb eccentric strength primarily with a bit of a focus on quad strength but also that um eccentric hip flexion okay so kind of hamstring posterior chain because you've got to control the center of mass moving forwards if you're running forwards you try to stop then you're stopping yourself basically going into that kind of forward rotation Um, but until we kind of really get more data lower limb moderate flexion mid joint ranges eccentric strength and that'll tick a lot of a lot of boxes uh, in my opinion um, and then it's just about applying that effectively obviously the same as you would with you know strength qualities for acceleration purposes learn to apply it into the ground with good positions good coordination kind of control is obviously the next next traditional s and c step for that
2: for sure no really good stuff and in my head i've got linking with the injury stuff and the, and the performance obviously you need to create quite high braking forces to to, to come or to slow down or or slow down your speed. But maybe it's trying to avoid in the massive peak spike and over a slightly longer time having greater impulse and, and, you know, area under the curve, but being able to control that effectively from an injury point of view, but doing it effectively for performance. There's a trade-off there as well, isn't there? Um, Mm So loads of things to go into. Rich, just a quick one in from, so you've got some really good concepts. Can I just then look at my player and I look at football because it's the thing I work in and a clear example is someone, you know, closing someone down and it's the, the the purest form of someone accelerating and decelerating so that they don't get beat in a 1v1. Can I just look at my player then and just say, well, actually I've, I've coached him in this. I know he's good at deceleration. Like where, where's the transfer then or the, the, the trade-off between here's my test 505 and i know it's hard to say it theoretically so actually well i know he's good at decelerating because he's effective at it in the games
1: you can you don't know if you're right it's a simple <laughs> answer i mean go for it I mean, look, we you can tell a lot of things with your eyes um i'd sometimes i'll test people and i'll go i could have told you that didn't need the numbers you watch them do it and just rubbish at it um but i think one you just have to remember that we'll always want to be biased of thinking they're great at something Two, you've then just got to think I think the asymmetry direction dominance is quite important left side versus right side, and you won't always be able to pick that up as a as effectively and and, and I guess the you know the final point is as well is that even if you can tell if you measure it, you then learn more it's almost easier in hindsight so if you like you could look at you know you look at 10, 15 people go through those kind of movements and some coaches will be able to tell you straight away, really good coaching eye, they're good at this, they're not good at this, this is their technical limitations. A lot of people won't, but if you then say to them, you see these numbers, this is a good number, this isn't a good number, and they then can retrospectively go back and look at that player and go, now I can see it. Now I can see that you've, you've isolated things and said, this is where the problem is, because you've drawn their attention to that problem, they've then automatically had that, had that learning process. So there's almost an argument for me where I I do think that that the visual assessment of it can take you a long way, depending on what your requirements are in terms of quantifying changing outcomes and things like that. But actually, I'm always surprised with, once you've tested somebody, how much you can then kind of go, actually, yeah, now I've seen the numbers, like I've now learned something and you've learned to interpret something new. And actually, maybe you test them once, and then you realize everybody's good at it. Sweet. I won't bother testing them again because you know that they're already good at it and that isn't a limiting factor for you. Um, so that does go a long way. But I don't think that that I wouldn't give that recommendation for very many people. If you're capable of it, go for it. Like, you know, do it. But a lot of people aren't and a lot of people will be helped by having some data to support what they think they're seeing, even if they don't use that data long term. If they use that data to learn, to improve their kind of coaching eye and then move on and be a little bit more time efficient after that than than happy days i think that's still a positive outcome
2: fantastic thanks rich um just moving on then i guess logically in my head from D cell to to change of direction um there's a lot of talk and you've been very active in this and i've jumped on a couple of a very few small percentage of your conversation on twitter around the change of direction agility continuum um Which i think sometimes often gets forgot people term it as agility and then they forget that Mm -hmm. it might be two different skills do you want to just talk a little bit then about your kind of ideas around that how it shifts to it and then different training implications that it has yeah sure
1: so as people probably know change directions pre-planned agility has got to have a perceptual cognitive reaction to it um you know we can argue definitions all the time i'm not one for definitions and you know semantics or terminology I think it's just about, you know, we traditionally have this and most people will follow this pre-planned, slightly more open, more chaotic, pre-planned to reactive at two ends of a continuum. And you slide your way up and down that absolutely fine, perfectly suitable. The key thing that I just think we have to remember is we as S&C coaches, we love a, we love a progression. We love a this first, this second, this third this fourth. Um, and it's just a little bit, for me, it's a little bit different in change of direction and agility because they do this a lot already. So if they, the first step for me is watch them do it and see if they're already good at it. If they hit all the shapes and the positions that you want, you don't need to go back to pre-planned change of direction drills with, with a technical focus because they already do it and they're already really good at it. It's not the same as coaching an Olympic lift where you you know they're probably not going to be very good at it so you start with a jump shrug as an example I don't like that but anyway you you, it's it's different because you know that is is that's the I guess that's the equivalent of taking an Olympic weightlifter and saying okay this today we're going to do jump shrugs for three weeks when actually you could argue the same thing from a change direction and agility perspective if they're a high-performing professional athlete watch them perform see what they're tendencies are see what they're good at see what they're not good at see if they create good shapes that you want them to and if they do you probably don't need to go all the way back down to that pre-planned change of direction route unless you just want something which is a controlled physical overload on a specific portion of it but you don't necessarily need to do that from a technical coaching perspective so that's something that I think we often often forget is that they run around have multi directional movement challenges in every sport they play from a team sport invasion perspective so work out what they're deficient in first and then that will then inform how you kind of where you start on that progression per person and how you approach it so for example from a deceler perspective if you're looking at somebody and there's they, you watch them in gameplay. They never choose to decelerate. They're always trying to run these looping runs and high velocity um, speed maintenance, which is going to be more prevalent in football. Um, but then, you know, for example, rugby might have more requirements where you have to decel. And if you look and if you think, they never choose to decel. And then you might take them just out on pitch, give them some constrained games, give them maybe something pre-planned or I wouldn't do that yet. Then see how they do it. And you just kind of have to subjectively think, this is what you don't do when you perform, or this is what you struggle with when you perform. Shapes, deceleration, speed control, there's lots of stuff that can feed into it. And if you've got a good testing battery to say, these are your physical limiting factors. You're fast, but you can't break. Or you can turn left, so you can't turn right. Your you know, reactive strength qualities are quite good, your max strength qualities aren't, aren't particularly good. And you combine those two together, You then end up with lots of information to say, this is where this group or this person needs to go. And then that gives you the idea of, in that case, I'm going to start this player at a pre-planned point on the change of direction, you know, control to chaos continuum, so to speak. Um, But I'm going to give you tasks that really force you to challenge your deceleration capabilities, or I'm going to challenge you to control your strides and your foot positioning on your less effective side. And that's the kind of stuff that you need to do in your pre-planned environment, because the whole point of that is that you're upgrading their physical capability, whether that's just from a capacity perspective or from, a, from an application perspective. And then you try and blend that back into more reactive, more open skills environments, once that they've really got those skills. And that's absolutely that works wonderfully, absolutely perfect. I just don't see very many people thinking in that detail it becomes a little bit of a ah, oh, we start pre-planned here's some pre-planned run, right run cut 90 degrees now cut 45 now turn and come back 180 and that's just kind of random pre-planned drills for a bit of overload because they think that that's where they need to start because it's the start of the progression rather than actually They're already good at it. You're not really overloading things. You're not working on something that that person really needs. You're kind of just wasting a little bit of time, and they could start further up that progression continuum earlier because the earlier we can get to something that's perceptive, something that's got perception action interlinked, then the better, in my opinion. Um, You can't always do that if somebody's got no basic physical competency in some of those movements, but sometimes i take for gr- sometimes i think we take for granted how much competency they do potentially have um or if they don't have it they don't have it in a specific part of it or in a specific thing so for example they, they can't move in the frontal plane very effectively um therefore my pre-planned stuff might be all frontal plane but then i could still do some reactive curve based high speed running you know cuts the different uh Shuffles, which are different to 180 degree turns and I simply just have to be more detailed with the different kind of paths people take, where they start and knowing why we are doing something at a certain point in time.
2: that's really good rich and just the scenario then for you so you see a player let's say in any sport you see a player shape wise he's in your opinion he's not very good and you know he's not hitting the shapes that you want him in either detail change direction whatever but performance wise he's really effective and it might be that perceptually he reads the game really well or he's overcome a problem and he's found a solution that works for him or her what do you do with that player then? Are you happy for them to perform that movement or do you still want to take them back to what we call the lab and and work on those shapes?
1: Yeah, um, that's the toughest one. It's the hardest part of this area. You get people who break a lot of the rules who are really effective. It's really (laughs) annoying. Um, (laughs) My my perspective would be you you take them back to the basics. You just change maybe... You change maybe some of your expectations of how much you're going to change it. Well... (laughs) It's not even about changing it. So I guess this all depends on exactly what this situation looks like, right? You you will have people who are um, relatively poor from a movement control pre-planned perspective, but they're really effective in competition. That's where there's a difference between teaching somebody some of these basic skills, put your base of support in the right place, control your center of mass and your trunk effectively to, you know, control kind of joint loads, control your speed. There's a difference for me between getting somebody better at those fundamentals, which we absolutely should be doing with everyone, compared to people kind of get concerned with trying to change how they do things, because if you change it, they might not be as effective. I think that you can get those foundational components more effective and much better, and it won't necessarily change how they do things on pitch, so to speak but what it will mean is that you know that they've got the tools to deal with what is probably a wider range of problems. So, and I'm not sure really whether I've made that particularly clear. It's kind of the difference between if somebody's just rubbish, they just don't control themselves very effectively on pitch, or they just hit a few precarious shapes. And I'm not really sure whether I like that, but they're really effective. If they're rubbish, take them back and teach them the basics. Because just because they're getting away with it now in competition, you don't really know how many scenarios they're being faced with where they don't get away with it. And actually they could get away with it. If you, um, or they don't, you know, they don't successfully complete that challenge and they could, if you cleaned up some of these basic competency patterns better, but that's just a little bit different to somebody who, you know, the classic cutting videos of someone's doing a little jump and a, and a, and a big step left and right. And you see what you might initially think is a really awful position. Do you coach somebody out of it no probably not as long as they've got some of these really fundamental basic skills to you know they can do all of the right things that just happens to be what it looks like for them in that particular situation um so i know that that was probably a little bit wishy-washy as i'm trying to kind of make a clear kind of um recommendation with it but if somebody can't do the really simple things they need to do the really simple things get good good control good postures hit good positions synchronize things and And time things effectively Um, if they break a few of the rules when they're in competition don't worry about it too much I mean there's you know you can feed that into your thought process but don't think it's an immediate problem Um, if they break rules in competition and they can't do those basics in testing pre-planned environments then I think you've got yourself a bit of a problem and something
2: to something to deal with no thing is, wishy-washy at all. I thought you answered it really well, so um, give give yourself some credit. I told you this, but it would be easy. This is your speciality, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, where do you sit? I know you mentioned it a little bit in the answers. Where do you sit, Rich, on the problem-solving um, like continuum? You know, there's a lot of around pedagogy and stuff where mm-hmm. pe- people are or coaches advocate, kind of suggesting we should give time to people to problem solve. And agility is quite um, a prevalent one that comes to mind. How? How long do you leave it before you step in and go, hold on, we need to change it and your shape here, actually? Um, again, another, another big question.
1: Um, I, I, it just kind of, I, it's a bit like the, simple, the previous answer, actually, where somebody needs to be able to do the basics. And I think what we may be, um, what we may be guilty of from a change of direction perspective is wanting coaching somebody into perfection do this movement and get this movement really, really good when they face that movement never in a in a performance context, as, as an example. Um, and there's a tough kind of balance between those things. And I guess it's where if somebody can control their base of support, they can control their movement speed. When they control their base of support and they produce really high levels of load, they they, they keep trunk integrity. They can, can, you know, they can essentially match their trunk to their lower leg to their lower leg, to their leg. That's kind of the simplest way I would describe it. If people can do those fundamental things, and this is kind of where you get into attractors, fluctuators and the whole dynamical system stuff. If people can do those really basic things, then give them problems to solve and see if they st- don't worry about the big global shape. See if they 're still doing those basic things, and if they 're not, then you probably need to drill those basic things into them in a little bit more a little bit more detail. If they are, then let them loose they 've got the basics they 've got all the skills they need. If it looks a little bit questionable on on pitch don't don 't have an immediate knee jerk reaction to that because sometimes that 's just what that situation required for them to um, for them to complete that problem if it looks like that all the time then you kind of step back and go every time they get into a situation where there's a a big cut they end up in this really dodgy position does that come back to the fact that they can move their feet effectively and apply force in multi-directional planes but they just can't control their trunk and that's one of our foundational things we've got to get we've got to get better so I, I think you're right you see you see kind of two two camps a little bit, I think, at the moment, when people who still really value and like pre-planned work and then people who are problem-solving, ecological dynamics, perception action have to be interlinked and everything else doesn't work. That's an exaggeration. But I think, again, there's a, there's, a, there's a sliding scale. You know, you can give people problems, but they're simple problems. If you give somebody where they have to react to another person, but all they're having to react to is a temporal stimulus is to know when to go, but they know where they're going. That's you know, that's not much of a problem, but it's, it's stepping forwards from the pre-planned change of direction stuff. And then you get to the other end of the perspective when somebody's at high speed, they've got two defenders to look at, and space and time becomes really constrained. That's a much greater problem. And you just have to think, is the problem that I'm giving them to solve too difficult for their current um, skill level, their current capability. And if it's too difficult, and they're just basically ran, randomly running around, and there's five defenders, and they're all dodging each other, you might not be developing much, or you might be encouraging some some suboptimal um, habits, I guess. But that doesn't mean that you can't use problems. It doesn't mean you need to go straight back to pre-planned change of direction. You could just reduce the complexity, give them more time take away the spatial options and just make some of you know one option or two options and then if you then see actually you can now control yourself really effectively in that you you find that challenge point um you know there's that some psychological theory and skill acquisition challenge point hypothesis you find the point where you maintain good positions you do really good things but you've got a 20 to 30 percent failure rate 20 to 30 percent of what you do you either screw up you don't complete. Or it looks really, really dodgy, and if it just looks really dodgy and you know it's awful all the time, the problem's too complicated and they aren't probably moving forwards effectively. But if it doesn't, then yeah, give them a bit of a problem. Um, if as soon as you give them a problem and it's temporally or spatially reactive, they screw it up and it it looks awful. Go back and go back to some pre-planned stuff, and it's just about finding where each person needs to be effectively um you know where they sit along that path and whether you're challenging them challenging them appropriately for what their current competency level is
2: that's really good rich and it it links into kind of your perceptual framework that you've kind of put out there a little bit and do you think the tricky thing is when you have a squad of players so if you were an individual athlete or your consultant you can watch that player in great detail and then start to profile him skill wise physiologically when you've got 25 in a squad and you're trying to put on a change of direction or agility session on a Tuesday morning to hit all those needs. That's the difficult bit, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Biggest, biggest challenge. um Subgrouping people is always a good way of doing it. Okay, you can do this. You can't do that. You're a group that really need. I guess it's it's different in different sports as well. Rugby, it's easier because you you get you get your speedsters. You get your Your front rowers, you're probably not going to worry dramatically about with some of this kind of stuff. At least the the um, the density of or the frequency of what you do is going to be going to be slightly different. Football is more challenging because the positions have more similarity. Um, But I do I think the it all depends what you get. If you get if you've got a team where you've got 25 people and everybody's all over the everybody everybody's got a completely different profile, you've got your work cut out. There's no easy way to solve that. But uh, if you can just be savvy with what you're measuring and what you're seeing and you're going, right, you guys are just slow. I don't need to worry about any multi-directional stuff because you just can't shift. Go do some sprints. That's a that's a subgroup you might have. Another group you might have, actually you're pretty quick, but you don't decelerate. And because you don't decelerate well, that's why I think you're not as good in a multi-directional movement. So I'm gonna have a bit more of a deceleration focused session for you you have another subgroup and etc etc with some of those other skills and I think that's the only real way to to do it but then sometimes you might just have to come down to on average this is what the team needs you're one and there's 20 of them you can't subgroup them you can't have them doing different things they're all in one session and you go back down to what is the the intervention which is going to have the biggest impact on the group as a whole um, and that depends on what you get. It might just be getting them better in the frontal plane, and if you do that, that'll have huge impacts across the board. It might be get everybody quicker. It might be get everybody to decelerate faster. Y- you work within your means. You know, you have to take in take in as much information as you can, use it to inform a decision, and then make a contextually relevant decision of okay how am I going to use this and move forwards so you might find me talking about deceleration deficit and you know all of these different kind of um sub qualities that you can take from kind of that simple testing protocol if you're on if you're on your own with 30 people and you can't implement an into a um an individualized training program then do it because you just you're testing for the sake of unless you maybe just want to use it as an educational process you're testing for the sake of getting some information and you can't implement any of that information and if that's the case that's where you're working at that point in time cool like, go with it you, you've got to just fit your current circumstances to where to what you or how you think you can have the, the greatest impact
0: yeah it, it, the, the, rich we've kept you for an hour and a half which has been amazing we really appreciate i i really liked ross you saw it as well that conundrum that you put up on twitter a few weeks back about Something along the lines of, would you prefer uh, a faster player who couldn't control their, their change of direction or a slower player who could, could change? Ross, what, what would you choose? <laughs> well, now I'm
2: being put on the spot. It's about time.
1: Um, <laughs> nice, like that. Well done. Good start. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I I think it depends. It really does depend what position do you want him for. It really does depend what sport you want him for. I I don't think you can answer that. I think that you would lean towards one answer if you had a bit more background info on it. So if you want to give that to me, Keir, I'll answer it. Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Do do you know what I was thinking in, Rich, I don't know how how, um,
0: familiar you are with Gaelic football and the Gaelic sports in Ireland, but... I think no, it, I'm not, it, at, all. not okay, at all. Okay, okay, no, no, that's completely fine. We, we, I mean, we spoke earlier about bigger pitches, bigger spaces, etc. Carry so you all. need to leverage. That's all you need <laughs> to know. Thirty, 30 yeah. crazy Irish fellas running around on a pitch. I I, 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 think, I think in Gaelic, in Gaelic football, I'd probably go with the, the person who has greater speed because there's just less change of direction. There's less agility. Of course, there is, and of course, there's small spaces and everything. But in general, I'd probably pick a, a faster player in in football. I'd probably be going more towards your, your guy who can control his change of direction and agility. But obviously, as, as, as you said, Ross, very dependent on position, player, team, scenario, level, you know, everything like that. Yeah.
1: The other thing which I add to that, which is an, another it depends, I think it just depends on just how good those two things are. Mm. There's a point when getting faster might not really have much of a transfer but if yeah. you're slow, I don't care how good you are at multi-directional movement, you don't move quick. It doesn't get you yeah. anywhere. Um, but if you're fast enough, okay, you're now fast enough, but you can't break, so, yeah, you just end up with this.
0: Yeah.
1: You, you, it depends, default, default we, answer for lots of reasons.
0: Yeah, we, we've we had a, a few players recently in the academy who are so fast, like incredibly fast, um, have all got released, you know, unfortunately, and, and they've had such... Good raw material, there physical ability, athleticism, and you know, just
2: not able to control that speed, not able to to, to control the ball sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's 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 the biggest thing as well. We're looking at it on a very minute yeah. physical lens, but in a sport like football, the technical side is is so prevalent. Uh? So yeah, you, yeah, there's so many factors that come into it.
0: Yeah, look, uh, it, Rich, it's, it's it's been really really good. I think we've probably hit on the intersection between uh the the theoretical frameworks versus then the applied setting and like some of our questions are are purposely kind of question okay well how can we actually apply that into the field and what would you do in that situation um and my wife who is a lawyer her answers to everything usually in in law is it depends and i think in in sports science and in snc a lot of the times it, it depends doesn't it on those individual situations
1: Absolutely. It absolutely does. The the important thing I guess is where I am with it all now is it depends and especially with change direction and agility the more information you have the more you can work out what it depends on and then you can make a more informed decision whereas at the moment we just don't have information. We don't we don't get much from testing. Research isn't transferring particularly effectively at least it's quite quite slow. That is what it is and you know we just need more information to feed in to help us make decisions to learn about what the right you know what the right decisions might be in in different different fields so yeah, yeah. The, the, the more the merrier and there's lots of different ways of doing it there's lots of different ways of implementing it at the end of the day
0: yeah no it's brilliant and i think following your phd over the next few years i think for for people and for ourselves will be really really interesting because you might get you know to answer some of those questions so just just If you want to find uh, um, Rich, so it's Rich underscore Agility Lab on Twitter. You've got your podcast, Rich Performance Podcast, and also your blog, um, uh, Athlete Agility Lab, and your new blog, blog post that was out there out of our comfort zone. So look, thank, thank you very much. It's been really, really interesting. Um, for anybody who's listening, head over to the website, dleysportsscience.com and people who want to sign up, use a special code of FOOTBALLSS. You get a 40% off at the moment. But you were our, not our first guest, but our 1st SNC S&C guest. Um, and I, I've really, really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to listening back to it. And I think there's a lot of stuff there to, to take out of it and to apply into the field. So thank you very much, much for coming thank, on. Thank, thank you. Thanks very much.
1: Um, and well done you gave me a hard time and that's what, exactly what should happen so that's a, good work
2: that's the, hopefully what we'll get out there soon Rich the Locker Room Podcast is a tough one to come onto. So.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you oh. gave so much back you you gave so much to us and I think the listeners are going to pick some valuable stuff out of their kids don't you yeah
0: brilliant yeah for us as well yeah that's great
2: brilliant thank, thanks cool. Rich
0: and we'll speak to you again appreciate it no problems take it easy brilliant cheers thank you